Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello, and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this, and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. All right, real quick before we get started on the show, I'm just going to talk about Treeline Academy. You've heard me say it. I can't even tell you how many times. Um, Mark Livesey is treelineacademy.net. That's treelineacademy.net. Sign up. Use the promo code PC2020. Save yourself 20 bucks. Can't say it enough. It's awesome. Amazing. Most comprehensive e-scouting course out there. Check it out for yourself. Sign up. Use promo code PC2020. And now let's get to the show. All right. So I'm sitting here and I'm talking to Orion Aon. And uh, Orion, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah. Hey, everyone. Um, like you said, my name's Orion. Uh, I live in Colorado. And the reason I'm on today is we're going to talk about foraging a little bit. Uh, I have a side business called Forage Colorado, where I offer education, you know, whether that's in person or through my social media and online, my website, um, all about foraging. Um, I have been doing it for about six and a half or seven years. And I just am enamored with all things wild food, including hunting and fishing. But um, I think the main focus today will be foraging. Um, I teach people about edible mushrooms and edible plants. Um, and just, you know, I'm, I'm passionate about the whole world. Nice. So I got to ask you, um, the whole foraging, hunting, fishing thing, was that something that was always part of your life or um, you grew up with that as a childhood? I mean, you grew up in Arizona, right? 
Is that? I grew up in New Mexico. Oh, New Mexico. Okay. So yep. you grew up in New Mexico. I mean, was that part of your life down there or was that something that just kind of evolved over time? Yeah. So the, f- the first kind of outdoor wild food pursuit that I started with was fishing. Um, I remember, I don't remember it, but I remember the story of being bundled up and taken out ice fishing in New Mexico when I was five, I think. And that's kind of, you know, some of the first implanted memories that I have of, of being out and, and doing something in pursuit of wild food. Um, and then every summer since I was born, we would go to Minnesota. My mom's side is from Minnesota. And so, you know, Minnesota, the land of 10,000 lakes. So yeah. fishing obviously was a big part of it there. And so every summer I would do fishing and um, around age 10, we had a family friend who was into mushroom hunting and they offered to take me and my brother and my dad out. Um, and from then on, we sort of just made a mushroom hunting trip, an annual thing, at least once, you know, maybe two or three times, some years we would get out, go check our spots, you know, spend the day picking mushrooms if they were, if they were out. And that sort of ingrained me with this like sense of, especially with mushrooms, it's like a treasure hunt. Like you're looking for this weird fascinating stuff that you can eat in the woods and (laughs) um i took that kind of knowledge uh when i moved to college i moved to fort collins to attend colorado state university for natural resource management and i started adding trees and plants into my education and then i started incorporating that into my foraging interest and in 2015 I was kind of bothered with the lack of like places to share information and talk with other foragers and, you know, just share in the passion essentially. And so I started Forage Colorado originally as a community where like-minded people could just talk about stuff. And it quickly evolved into me being the educator for other people as, as more of an education platform instead of a community platform. Um, and I started taking people out for morel classes. Um, a lot of people don't know morels grow in Colorado, but we actually have a pretty good number of morels. Um, they're picking morels right now in the burn areas. It's nice. end of July. So <laughs> most people in the Midwest probably be surprised to hear that. But yeah, I know people that are picking pounds and pounds of morels out of the burn areas right now. Um, and so I started teaching people that. And it just evolved into, you know, me kind of offering education on this stuff that it seems like more and more people are interested nowadays. So let's kind of rewind that a little bit. Cause, um, you, you kind of said a lot with the whole, um, you started this community for other people and you ended up being the educator, but at what mm-hmm. point was it that you actually became the educator and how did you educate yourself? Yeah. So I was kind of looking for this stuff like 2014, 2015, starting Forage Colorado. Um, as a community. And I think in 2015 is really when it was like, okay, this is going to be me offering education instead of a community driven platform. Um, And I already had from my schooling of natural resource management and at that time, you know, 12 or so years of mushroom hunting, I kind of had the, the foundation for picking up on learning this stuff really quickly and 
you know, plant identification and tree identification was something that I was schooled in. And so I was able to just sort of absorb as much as possible in a, in a quick, you know, quick amount of time. And as I started sharing it, people were just, you know, very interested in what I had to talk about and wanted to learn more. And so that's kind of that transition was just like me absorbing stuff. And then as I learned it and felt really comfortable with it, you know, sending it out to other people as I discovered new things or just sharing something new that I learned with people, um, you know, sort of like a voice in, in the space of foraging that, that is sharing information. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Um, so when, when you did um, your mushroom hunting, cause I mean, like what I find fascinating is there's a lot of mushroom hunters out there a lot, but typically they only hunt maybe two or three different species or types, types of mushrooms. And that's mm-hmm. it. They don't ever branch out or go any further from that. What was it that drove you to go further and find different uh, species of mushrooms? Yeah, that's that's a great question. You know, a lot of people, this is a big topic, so we'll see how far it goes. <laughs> but um, I'm going to sort of compare to like Midwest, you know, in the Midwest, it's like morels in the spring and then maybe like chicken of the woods and hen of the woods in the summer and fall um chanterelles maybe and the easy to learn ones they're really really kind of foolproof to to learn and identify um and that's the same in other states too you know in colorado we have king bolites and chanterelles and oyster mushrooms and a few others um but because i started so young in the world of mushrooms it it, it always fascinated me and just like drew my interest and so that's really in in the whole world of foraging and trees and plants and mushrooms the mushrooms are really my passion and so on top of foraging for the edible species i also do a little bit of like amateur mycology where i'm offering identifications for people online and you know looking for cool species myself and documenting them um not necessarily edible species but you know inedible toxic unknown um, mycology is such a novel field that we're learning new stuff regularly. And so it's really fun to sort of see it just like expand and grow. Um, and so that's sort of how I got into breaking out of the, you know, like four or five edible species that people are comfortable with. And I think I have around 40 different edible species I've eaten so far. Um, and I keep track of them on a spreadsheet and I'm like very, compared to some people, very cautious about eating new species. I research a lot. I make sure I'm 100% confident and comfortable before I eat one. Um, And sometimes that takes two or three years of finding it, picking it, getting used to its features. Um, And that's something that I teach in my classes. Um, But on the other end, to to talk to the, the side of the people that are kind of stuck in the two to four species or so, um one they're sort of like that's all they taught or that's all they were taught and so that's sort of they don't want to learn anything else they know those they're happy to go pick morels in the spring and those couple fall species and that's that um and that's totally cool but there's other people that you know really get interested in like oh like i've heard about this cool species that's edible and i want to find it and try it and see what it tastes like because each mushroom tastes a little differently they can have different textures different smells different flavors and so 
finding the ones that you like and fi- trying new ones is sort of this like culinary experience that you would never get to experience anywhere else. Um, and there's another aspect to that in North America um, that most people call mycophobia, which is fear of mushrooms. And so there's like this kind of underlying fear and taboo about around mushrooms where, you know, the general populace is sort of afraid of them. And so I think that can drive a little bit into people sticking to like the easy ones to learn. They're like, I know morels, I know oysters, I know chicken of the woods, everything else is deadly. I don't care about the other ones. You know, and I see that a little bit online and it's like, I, that's fine if that's what you, what you want to do, but there's so much more interesting stuff and there's really not that many deadly species out there. And it's pretty easy to differentiate them if you just put a little time into it. And so, you know, that's how I approach it. Um, I'm totally cool with the people that are just like, I know three, I'm going to eat those the rest of my life. I don't care about the others. So, yeah, for sure. No, I, I, I don't know. For some reason it fascinates me and I wish I had more time to just get out there and spend out there and even take my kids and find them and study them together and, you know, try and figure out what they are. But it's tough sometimes. It's tough to get out there and do all that. But um, yeah, I I, hear it, it's always interesting to go and like just recently I posted one and I uh, tagged you in it because I was hoping you would see what it was and be able to identify it for me. But the same thing, I mean, you know, you see it and you take a picture of it and you want to, you know, you, you want to figure it out. Um, like I'm always looking now cause I saw Adam Harrington posted, uh, the garlic mushroom. So any tiny little mm-hmm. mushroom I see sporing off of, uh, like a dead twig somewhere, I'm always picking it up and studying it and trying to figure out, you know, different what, what it is. Right. And looking for that little elusive, tiny little mushroom, but have yet to be successful on that. <laughs> yeah. I found some of those, um, uh, mycetinas. That's the genus of that garlic smelling mushroom i found some of those in minnesota this summer which for the first time just smell them and then put them back okay okay that's the other (laughs) thing is i don't i try and just take really good pictures now and and, uh, identify them rather than disrupt the actual life cycle because i mean everything has a purpose right and take what we need and do the rest although i get it some people say take it home say you're going to use a um what was the word a uh, mycoterrarium or something like that to where you're actually doing studying them and putting them growing them. I don't know, but yeah. Well, the interesting thing about mushrooms um, is the, the actual mushroom that you see above ground is the fruit, the fruiting body of the fungus. So the actual fungus is the mycelium that lives in the soil or the wood or the substrate that they're growing from. And so when the conditions suit it, they send up their fruit which is the mushrooms. So picking them is comparable to picking a fruit off of a tree. If you take that apple off of an apple tree, you're not harming the apple tree, right? You're just taking some potential seeds, but mushrooms instead of seeds have spores. And as soon as they come out of the ground and start opening their cap, they're sending spores out. So there's a, there's a huge (laughs) misinformation people still online. There's two giant debates on mushrooms. It's cutting versus picking the synopsis of that is it doesn't matter. (laughs) And long-term studies have actually shown that picking is slightly more beneficial to the actual fungus because it doesn't allow uh, bacteria and other infections to get in through the cut surface. Um, And the other debate is 
picking all the mushrooms or leaving a certain number or letting some go to spore or carrying them in a basket so that they can spread spores. And at the end of the day, you know, if you, if you're comparing it to a fruit, which is what it is, even if you harvest all of them from an area, one, it'll probably fruit again. You know, if conditions are suiting it to fruit, it'll keep sending more fruit out. Unlike a tree that sort of flowers and fruits all at the same time, the mushrooms can continue to fruit until the conditions don't suit it. So that's one thing. The other thing is unlike a fruit, they're dropping spores constantly as you know, as soon as they've reached a mature stage versus a fruit which matures, dies, and then either an animal eats it or it drops its seeds directly and then has the potential to become a new tree. Um, the mushrooms are consistently sending out their quote unquote seeds um, to create new colonies of mycelium. So, Picking it doesn't harm the mycelium and it doesn't affect future generations because the mycelium is still in the soil. Additionally, it's sending spores out consistently. So, you know, unless you're there every day picking <laughs> every little tiny mushroom, you're, you're not going to affect it. Awesome. Um, I like yeah, and that. the other thing is people are like, you know, leave some for wildlife, but you know, that's, that's, that's fine. Um, but the wildlife live there. Like they eat those things yeah. as, as much as they want that we could never beat them to them. So it, it's kind of a moot argument, but at the end of the day, you should do what you're comfortable with and what you feel is respectful to the resource and, you know, your, your own morals and philosophical, you know, feelings about this topic it, uh, should be what you practice. Don't let anyone else tell you otherwise, but the science says and supports what i just went over essentially i like that let's let's rewind it a little bit though you said the the picking versus cutting and cutting actually leaves it exposed to different bacteria and stuff now have they found that exposed you know the the root or whatever you want to call it of the mushroom exposed actually causes um enough bacteria to where it can like kill the actual mycelium underground or so I don't think, so there's, there's a couple long-term studies. There's one that was done for about a decade and another one that's still ongoing that's been going for about 30 years. And what they did is they have different plots and they have plots where they cut, plots where they pick and plots where they leave, leave it alone. They don't touch anything, the control plot. And over time, each of the plots were statistically similar versus cutting, picking and leaving them alone. There was like a slight um, positive on the picked side because of those cut stems. And I don't know that they went into like the actual damage towards the mycelium, but there are parasitic molds and fungi that infect other fungi. So um, one common example of this would be the lobster mushroom, Hypomyces lactiflorum, is actually a parasitic mold that infects a kind of boring white mushroom called, uh, well, it can infect a handful, but the main one is uh, Rustula in the Brevipes group. And it turns this mushroom into this gourmet, edible, kind of totally different, bright orange looking mushroom. And so there are other parasites that get in and can affect them, you know, whether it's turning it into a, a different sort of mushroom or attacking the actual mycelium. Um, I didn't, I don't recall that the study actually went into it, but the article that everyone references when discussing this says there was a slight preference to the picked mushrooms. Interesting. So now that you mentioned lobster mushrooms, let's kind of go into that a little bit. <laughs> and you actually, um, you know, 
made the perfect segue there. So is there, because I hear a lot of different things and, and I don't know if it modifies it once the, the other fungus infects the fungus and, and changes it. But like, is there any poisonous lobster mushrooms that we know of? And like, are the species before they're infected possibly uh, toxic, if you will, or poisonous? So <clears throat> my understanding is that, and, and I don't know about other states, um, you know, specifically in the Southwest, in the Southern Rockies and kind of Southwestern states, the lobster mushrooms almost always infect um, Rustula brevipes group mushrooms, which are just sort of a boring looking white mushroom in the Rustula or the brittle gill genus. Um, they can also infect milk caps in the Lactarius genus, but they almost always infect those Rustula. Um, I have heard tell of toxic ones being infected by the lobster mold, which is Hypomyces lactiflorum. But I've never heard any documented case of somebody eating a lobster that was a toxic species, toxic species and getting sick. I think my understanding is that the Hypomyces, there are multiple Hypomyces species and Hypomyces lactiflorum, the lobster mushrooms, is kind of specializes in those restula and milk cap mushrooms. Um, there are hypomyces that target amanita mushrooms. There are hypomyces that target bolete mushrooms, so on and so forth. Um, there's even other hypomyces that target other milk caps and other lactarius. Um, but the lobster specifically, as far as my understanding goes, is always safe to eat. Awesome. And where do you typically find those? Is it like in a conifer type environment or is it? Uh... It depends where the, the habitats to find lobster mushrooms kind of depends on the state you're in. In the Southwest, they typically are found in Ponderosa pine forests um, because their host species, the rest of the brevipes, like growing in ponderosa pine here in other states they grow with different trees though um and i'm not super familiar with them i haven't hunted them in any other states um, but i do know in in some like in the midwest they, they're often found in deciduous forests i think um interesting so yeah i know it can be different and it, it really just depends on where their host species grows hmm. so if you were going to and this is perfect because if you were going to scout, say you were going to the Midwest and you were going to scout, would you e-scout for them? Or would you just kind of go and look for something? Yeah, so um, I would research what sort of trees they're typically found in or what sort of forest types they're found in, whether it's oak or pine. or um, And then I would figure out an area that has those sorts of trees, whether that's you know reaching out to local people that have information or, or getting on a satellite and just sort of picking out where I can kind of see like deciduous versus conifer. Um, I know at least in Minnesota, like the conifers are typically Northern and the deciduous are more like central and Southern. So. Interesting. Um, yeah. You can definitely e scout for mushrooms though. I, I do it regularly and that's maybe not for lobsters. <laughs> I but. was going to get at that. Can, <laughs> can you talk about e scouting for mushrooms and how you, how you approach that and um, kind of just, you know, like key features that you're honing in on that you're looking for. And I know that varies, you know, per species, but. Um, sure. Yeah. yeah. In, in flatter states and states with, you know, predominantly deciduous forests, 
I don't know how well you can pick out like an oak forest from a maple forest on a satellite map, but I haven't done it. Yeah. Unless you look in the fall, right? You'd have to, so you'd have to probably, and this is just something that popped in my head, but you could go and find a piece that you're thinking of and looking at. Then you could go into Google Earth Pro and take the slider and slide it back to the time of year where the leaves would change, where it would depict actually what species, and you could kind of go from that. So you would know if it was a maple forest because the leaves are going bright versus, you know, like an oak, which kind of turns brown. So Mm -hmm. one way to look at it. That could work. That'd be a, a hot tip for finding oak forests. Um, in in Colorado and you know in mountainous states, you can get on and you can find elevations which matter for mushrooms. You can find different tree densities. You can find different aspects, which is the direction, the cardinal direction a slope is facing. So generally, for mushrooms in in mountainous states, I'm going to start on a north facing slope because those hold the most, most moisture. Um, and then depending on the species, I'll look for different things. So we'll just talk for, for as an example about King Bolites, uh, Porcinis. In Colorado, they grow in association with spruce and fir, but their preference is spruce. And they like to grow on edges of meadows or old logging roads, um, kind of areas of disturbance clearings and forests. And so you can sort of pick that stuff out on a map and based on elevation, you could assume that the forest is probably spruce fir because we don't have to get into all the details, but forest type changes throughout the elevation bands in the mountains up to tree line. Um, And then you can find meadows with the right sort of aspects or features that you want to look for, you know, that mushrooms might fruit from and then pick a few of those areas. And then when you get out there, you can sort of be like, okay, that one's not quite right. That's mostly pine, but this one over here is spruce. So let's start looking there. Um, can you actually break down the elevation bands? Because I think that's something that would not only correlate to mushrooms, but it would also really tie in elk hunting as well. As sure. As, yeah. yeah. So yeah. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. So generally, um, it, and it can vary a little bit, but, Generally, we have the plains, you know, below the mountains. This is east of the mountains. Um, We have the kind of foothills, which are predominantly scrub, you know, mountain mahogany, sumac, ponderosa, juniper. Um, That's from, say, 5,500 to 7,000 or so. Um, 7,000 to 9,000 roughly is kind of a mixture of mid-elevation montane, which can include mixed conifers and aspens like Douglas fir, lodgepole pine, ponderosa, some of the spruces, um, and it can be mixed. You can have forests that are totally lodgepole pine. You can have forests that are totally ponderosa, Um, but typically that that kind of 7,000 to 8,000 or 7,000 to 9,000 band is often the most diverse when you're getting into montane habitats. Um, Above that, starting around 9,000 or 9,500, you start getting into predominantly spruce fir and or lodgepole and some aspen in there as well. Um, So the spruce fir are typically 
you know, just that spruce, spruce trees and fir trees, they kind of like the same conditions. They're typically darker, denser forests, um, wetter forests versus the lodgepole pine forest, which also can be higher elevation. Um, a pure lodgepole forest is dr a drier habitat, uh, often very little underbrush. Um, if it was beetle killed, there's, you know, often a lot of down and dead deadfall to climb over that's the same in spruce fir though there's there's just a lot of deadfall in colorado if we're referencing elk hunting <laughs> um and and those habitats go to treeline which is roughly twelve thousand feet um and then above that you have alpine and you know if you're doing early archery stuff you might be getting into alpine for some of it with especially if you're doing mule deer um mule deer are still up in alpine at that point so yeah, that's that's a very rough generalization of it, but that's kind of kind of the breakdown. No, I like it. So then let's talk about like so you're honing in and you're looking for these north facing slopes, these meadows, uh, with transitional lines of different types of um trees, right? And and mm -hmm. what, like typically what kind of trees are you looking for if you're say you're looking for a king bow leaf? So king boletes, I'm focusing on the spruce trees because that's their favorite host. Um and you can actually sometimes pick out a spruce fir forest versus a lodgepole pine forest on satellite maps. Um, their coloration is a little different and their density is usually a little different. It's, it's not a perfect science, but um, you can sometimes pick those out. And so you want to find the, a mature spruce forest or a mature spruce fir forest with edges, essentially, is kind of the way I would describe ideal king bully habitat. When you say edges, you mean like the same type of edges where it's a transitional edge from yeah, one, one, like, one habitat into the next? Yeah, and, and that would be specifically for King Beliefs, like meadows or an old logging road that, you know, has it's created a disturbance in the forest where there's no trees. And so the it gets some extra sunlight. There might be some like young trees growing back in the old logging road. Um, King Beliefs specifically prefer a little bit of sunlight in those kind of slightly disturbed areas kind of sounds like you're describing like you know prime uh, elk habitat as well <laughs> that, yeah i mean is that fair to say that you've scouted some spots for mushrooms and decided to uh to look for elk there as well yeah um last weekend i was in a new spot picking mushrooms and teaching a class and i saw probably more elk sign that i've seen in, in most spots that I hunt, so. <laughs> Were you dropping pins or do you have it memorized? <laughs> oh, I got it memorized. Yeah. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So, um, what kind of described, cause I saw something you posted the other day. So these King Belites are huge, right? I mean, they're like, like they can be. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean like the Belites that we have, and I haven't picked any and actually eaten any yet because I'm a little bit scared and I need to educate myself more on the Belites. But um, kind of like, tell me about them, like the texture, the taste. I want to know a lot yeah. more about them. So you've, you've heard us referencing King Belitz or Porcini. Um, that specifically is referring to a group of mushrooms in the Boletus edulis group. Edulis meaning edible. Um, Boletus edulis is thought to be a European-only species. Um, there is some debate that we might have one or one that's very, very closely related here in North America, but it seems like that's still up in the air. Um, but Boletus edulis is the type species for that group of similar mushrooms 
Um, in North America, we have about 15 species and they're all, you know, colloquially called porcini or king bolites. Um, in Colorado, we have two species, the white king bolete and the ruby king bolete. Um, and the one we've been talking about now is the ruby king bolete, which is boletus rubriceps, which means redhead. And it kind of has like a, like a rusty brown or rusty red, um, really, really pretty cap color. Um, and they can grow to be, I mean, I've seen some 15 plus inches across and <laughs> several pounds, like three, four pounds, a single mushroom. Um, by then they're typically a little wormy and squishy and no good for food. Um, but the younger ones and kind of the, the medium aged ones are, are great to use in all sorts of things. Um, I pick the medium one, the medium sized ones for dehydrating. I like to have dried and powdered porcini around. It's, it's a great kind of savory additive to any sort of dish, um, that mushroom powder. And then the dehydrated ones can be rehydrated and used in all sorts of things. Um, the fresh ones, it's, they're hard to describe. Um, you have to have cooked them a couple times to get used to doing it correctly. They can be a little slimy if you don't cook them right. Um, they have a lot of water. And so typically if I'm going to saute them, like if I want like mushroom, a mushroom burger, or mushrooms and steak or something, I'll dry saute. So I'll slice them up, put them in a pan with nothing, but a little bit of salt and let the water kind of get sucked out of them and cook that off. And then I'll finish them with a little bit of fat and kind of crisp up the edges. Um, that's the most basic way to cook them, but you can kind of cook them in endless ways any way you would cook a mushroom, um, the young ones at least. And the other thing that's interesting about them is they have, so bolites in general have a, a pore layer or a tube layer. Um, instead of gills, they have a sponge. And the king bolites, as they mature, that sponge goes from white to yellow to a dark green color. Um, and that sponge can actually be separated when it's mature and dried and used as sort of like an extra powerful mushroom powder, or you can cook it fresh. Um, this isn't something I've experimented with a ton, but there's people that steam like to steam that and have compared it to like crab butter, that sort of like oh, rich okay. <laughs> innards of crabs, um, just like complex flavor, but that same sort of texture. Um, but yeah, my favorite are the, the young ones that are dense and nutty and mushroomy. Um, so there's kind of like a nutty taste to them if... yeah they have a little bit of a nuttiness um they're pretty they're pretty mild mushroom they're not super strong um a little bit of a dense tex texture and they get really good if you get a little bit of like browning on the edges um the other day i roast i sliced up some young ones and roasted them until they like were crisp on the outside but soft on the inside and that was really good too you put them in the oven and then yeah yeah so then what'd you yeah. what'd you put them on and eat them um, with that, I had them on some pesto pasta, which I made from our garden with the nice. pesto. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I had elk burgers with mushrooms the other day and nice. elk Man, steaks and mushrooms. So yeah, <laughs> I, I, I like water. <laughs> yeah. I like incorporating like all the wild foods as much as possible. So doing, doing meals that are just fully foraged and hunted or fished and foraged is, is kind of a fun thing that I like to do every once in a while. That's awesome. So I, I, I saw you doing something um, where you took and you made like a brine 
and you brined the the king bolites or or what were they and and you did mm-hmm. something with them what was the purpose of that versus just drying them yeah so i believe you're referencing the the marinated mushrooms which is a hank shaw recipe and i'm sure okay. your listeners are all familiar with hank shaw um, i hope i don't know <laughs> yeah if you're not go go look him up because he's awesome and um, alan burgo you gotta <laughs> yeah alan, alan burgo is awesome as well um Hank Sorry. Shaw's recipe. No, you're good. I, <laughs> I was thinking I get to see Alan and at the end of September at that event. So I was nice. thinking about that, but, um, the recipe for it's, it's an Italian style marinated mushroom and it's just, it's really just a way to preserve them. That's not dehydrating or freezing. Um, you slice them up and salt them really well. And the salt just sucks all the moisture out of them. And then that, that pulling that moisture out sort of condenses them a little bit and they get a little more firm and then you boil them you take the salt you know knock the salt off and boil them in vinegar for five to ten minutes and then you dry them out to the point of kind of being still pliable but not wet anymore and then you put those in a jar with oil and spices Um, hank uses chili lemon zest and oregano i used some dried cayenne chilies from our garden and bee balm, which is a wild mint that is sort of an oregano like flavor and then lemon zest. And you cover that all in a, like a nice high-end olive oil and just let it marinate for a week or, or more. And it lasts in the fridge for several months. Nice. Um, and it's just like a, if you get, if you get a few pounds of like premium mushrooms, it's an amazing recipe to use them. Have you tried that with any other mushrooms or was that your first go around at it? I've done it with uh, chanterelles before and it was really good. Uh, I think any sort of denser mushroom would do really well in it. You know, I bet oysters would be fine. Um, Like a chicken of the woods, maybe? I don't know if chicken of the woods because it's kind of, chicken of the woods is kind of like. It's not dense. You're right. Yeah, Yeah. It's not like a, it's kind of like almost fibrous to a way like kind of i guess it's chicken like but yeah. um it might work yeah it might work i'm i'm sure somebody's tried it i haven't so hen of the f- woods probably would work because uh, hen of the woods yeah, yeah i bet um then those two species don't really grow in colorado chicken of the woods has been found i think six times in colorado ever all mm. in kind of urban front range low elevation where they either came in on trees or where somebody's escaped cultivation or nice. just some random <laughs> wild one but um yeah i did get to pick my first chicken of the woods in minnesota this summer how about a hand of the woods have you ever picked one of those i haven't i'm hoping to in september you're the second person i've talked to that's never picked them and i'm like man there there's so many around here and i've picked like five ten pounders before <laughs> like yeah big and i'm like oh i'm done i don't need any more so yeah <laughs> you might that have one's... to come down and pick a few for me <laughs> I would love to. That's like top of my list. Um, I've been taking a week off for the Midwest Wild Harvest Festival, which is a foraging festival put on in Wisconsin by um, Sam and Melissa Thayer. Sam Thayer is a well-known foraging author. Um, And I'm going out there this year to teach mushroom classes for them. And I'm going to take a week and travel, see some friends in Nebraska and some friends in Iowa and do some mushrooming on the way. So I'm hoping, fingers crossed, that I can I find, find them in some August hen of, of the woods. So, so hopefully, What's that? I said sometimes like real late August, you can even find them. 
Okay. But it has it has to be kind of like cooler cooler temps. Yeah, but, I know they fruit later and kind of even into fall, so I'm hoping end of September. And I've even found them in November. Wow. Deer hunting. So like we had real mild weather. It got cold early and then warmed back up and just kind of stayed mild. And uh, I I think I found them like all the way into like the first week maybe second week in November. So that was really cool. Even though I didn't take home a deer, I took home like, I think five or six of them. And I sent my buddy home with two of them. I bet you it was, you know, a total of like 20, 25 pounds of mushrooms. So it's pretty cool. Heck yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, that's, that's my, my big hope for, for the trip and we'll see. What's weird. is like, I found chanterelles growing in the same spots, like chanterelles okay. and, and like, the hen of the woods seem to kind of like the same habitat or at least in the Midwest where I'm at. So the head of the woods, like Oak trees, right? Mm -hmm. Is that true yes. for chanterelles as well? Yeah. I found them in the Oak area. So, and and what's it's, it's not like all Oaks though. So like mm -hmm. if you get your pin Oaks and stuff like that. You don't tend to find them. It's seems to be your old growth Oaks, mostly black Oaks. Okay. Or at least around me, but yeah. Cool, but hey, good. I don't know. I it's, don't know what it is further north, but um, yeah, that's a whole different. It's a whole different world. Yeah, especially like Con 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 way north, like the north woods of Wisconsin up there, you know. But um, yeah. so, what did, you did something with your salt too? I got to get back to that food because it really kind of like got my gears turned. And that's in what is that in like uh, Hank Shaw's book? The I don't remember ever reading that. The recipe is on his website. If you just look oh, okay. up Hank Shaw marinated mushrooms, um, and the salt wasn't is not something that he includes in his recipe. But um, what I did was, you know, the the salt that you cover the mushrooms in is just it just pulls all the liquid out, and so it's just like a soupy mess of salt and mushroom water. <laughs> um, and I drained off the water and dehydrated the salt. And so one, I'm saving the salt for another use because it's still, it's fine. It's salt. Um, it right. doesn't go bad. Um, you know, it loses a little pH when you get water in it and stuff, but it's still totally fine. And it also has like a, a little hint of essence of porcini now. So I have like this sort of sea salt that smells a little bit like porcini mushrooms. So what are your plans for it then? What do you, I mean, just use it as need be, or do you have actual yeah. recipes in mind? So one thought was kind of layering that porcini flavor and adding some dried porcini powder to the porcini essence salt. Um, so then you kind of get like a, you know, layering of that same flavor. Um, I do a lot of fermenting and pickling of things. And so I could sort of use that to see if I can impart a little bit of that porcini essence into there. Um, it was just more so an experiment in that I didn't want to, toss like a pound of salt out right yeah um, so but like, i mean might as well dehydrate it and see what happens it's cool um, if you've got something you're actually gonna you know use it for or you have something in mind too um but so you mentioned though that you're you turn the mushrooms into powder i think that's cool but you're gonna uh -huh. have to break that down a little more so you fully dehydrate dry yep. dehydrate them to the point to where they're i mean pretty much toasty Crack, yeah cracker cracker crisp dry okay and that's sort of any like any mushroom that is middling mature or you know a little bit more mature. I'll dehydrate 
um, and I'll eat the younger ones fresh or I'll cook them and freeze them. Um, and that's just my personal preference. Um, it doesn't, there's no reason for it aside from it's just what I like to do because I like to have a lot of dehydrated mushrooms because they can keep essentially forever as long as you keep them dry. So um, if you want to make mushroom powder, you just take those dehydrated mushrooms and run them through either a mortar and pestle or a spice grinder or a blender, food processor, whatever you have to break down something into powder. Um, and it makes a really cool spice. You can add it to eggs and you get like this complex mushroomy, savory, you know, depth that you wouldn't get really with anything else. Um, you know, it's, I guess maybe MSG kind of adds that like umami and, and depth of flavor and savoriness. Um, it's just, it's a complex, yeah. Complex flavor that you can't really get anywhere. So, so I mean, I, I don't know. It's got my wheels turning so much here, but, um, so when you dry mushrooms to like reconstitute them and use them in something else, um, wh what temp are you drying them at? Cause I've done it a couple ways and I can never get them to where they stay like in their form. And I've seen some people where they dry morels and they dry mm -hmm. them and they still look like a morel. Mine shrivel up. And is that like, because I'm doing too much heat to them or something and it's actually cooking them or no, they'll, they'll shrivel up. Um, the only way to preserve, to dry mushrooms and to sort of keep somewhat of their shape that I've seen is to freeze dry them. Ah. And you need an expensive freeze dryer if you're going to do that, yeah. um, which would be a cool tool to have. Awesome but, um, tool to have. I'm still trying yeah. to convince my wife to buy one because in fact, right now in my dehydrator, I've got uh, some meals that I'm making for uh, elk season right now. And sure. Um, yeah, it'd be awesome to have a or freeze dryer instead of a dehydrator. <laughs> totally. Yeah, and I, I know some people that have them and use them for mushrooms a lot. Um, but yeah, I just have one of those big like Excalibur dehydrators with all the trays, um, and I just run it on its lowest setting. And it's usually about 24 hours to go from quarter-inch slices to cracker crispy dry. Um, in Colorado, you, we don't have to have a dehydrator. We can just use a screen by a sunny window or a fan um, because it's not very humid here. Yeah. Um, in some states, that's not super reliable. Um, you know, the humidity will just mold stuff. But <laughs> yeah, he here you can just sort of put them out on a screen and they'll dry out in like three or so days. Yeah. Um, or think, you can use the oven on its lowest setting. I think we're at like 98% humidity here right now. So <laughs> that's yeah, that wouldn't work, that wouldn't work, work out. Too good. It'll <laughs> just turn to a goo. But yeah. um, so you do that and like, how do you read, what do you use to rehydrate them? Because I've done a couple different ways. I've used like broth and things like that. And then I've actually rehydrated them in wine before and then cooked uh -huh. them that way, which was kind of interesting. It took on a whole new depth of flavor for sure. Yeah, you can do really any flavor you want. Um, if I'm just wanting mushrooms to use, you know, in something as mushrooms, I'll rehydrate them in hot water. Um, just pour out, pour like boiling water over them and let them sit for an hour or so. Um, you get the rehydrated mushrooms and you get a mushroom broth that way. Um, but if you want to make, you know, like a mushroom sauce and you're going to use broth as part of the sauce, you could rehydrate them in the broth and use the amount that you're going to use for the sauce. And then you can just sort of incorporate it all at the same time. You know, like you mentioned wine. Um, I know people who have rehydrated mushrooms in 
certain species of mushrooms in like a liqueur and then candied them. So they sort of like suck up that liqueur and then they become like sweet liquory mushrooms. Um, yeah, it's kind of an endless, like, <laughs> yeah, so many different ways you can do it. So what's, uh, I got to ask you, what's like the most obscure mushroom you've ever found? The most obscure mushroom I've found. Um, there are a couple species, non-edible species that I've found that were either I couldn't identify, like they just couldn't figure out what they were. Um, one of those was I got it to the genus Suilus, or which is the slippery jacks, um, but I never got a species on it. And there's some reasons for that. Um, and another one I found was just like a, a fairly rare ground dwelling polypore, which polypores are typically on wood, um, but there are a handful of species that fruit from the soil. And I found one of those that I had never seen before. And I had to kind of dig to figure out what it was. Um, neither edible, but kind of cool finds. The cool thing about mycology and mushrooms is that we learn more like regularly and certain specific conditions can fruit a species that has been living in the soil for decades or even longer yeah. and it's just like oh okay now it's my type of fruit and you're like wow we had no idea that this was here and you know some sort of conditions aligned for it and there they are and now we have to study them and figure out what they are and why they're here um so it's, it's pretty interesting that's kind of been like this year. I've seen more different species, a lot of them that I haven't even had time to look at or, you know, some of them I've taken pictures of, but it's been a really wet summer, which mm -hmm. is pretty rare around here. Normally by this time, you know, water levels are pretty low and things like that. And, and, and it's kind of different. So it's interesting to see all the different stuff kind of popping up that normally I, I don't see. And so like the one that I sent you, even though that's probably fairly common, but I've never seen it just kind of in the middle of the trail where, yeah. uh, where I found it. And then, um, I found another one. It, it looks super weird. So it's almost like a pheasant back. Um, okay. but underneath it's got like little hedgehog looking at, I can't, I don't know. It's not like a polypore yeah, or anything. Yeah. It's like got like teeth on the bottom of it. Mm -hmm. But it looks almost like a pheasant pack, and I cannot figure out what the heck that is. Would be a, a, sarc a sarcodon of some sort. And it was, Sar I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I got a, yeah. that's a good start to maybe look to try yeah, and it, identify it, would, it. But I'm almost, just based on your description, I'm almost positive it's a sarcodon species. Um, we have one in Colorado, sarcodon imbricatus. We have several, but that one um, is one of my favorite edible mushrooms. Really? And I've never, ever seen it before around here. So it's kind of interesting yeah. that that uh that popped up but i'll have to look at that but um yeah. yeah so any kind of big plans this year other than like doing the foraging thing you got any hunts planned or anything like that yeah we um we've mostly focused on mushrooms so maybe <laughs> we'll have to plan another one to talk about plants one of these days oh geez <laughs> yeah that's an i do that too yeah um <laughs> but um hunts yeah i'm i'm last year was a heavy hunt year i i got an elk with my bow my first ever um I got two mule deer and a pronghorn buck, uh, rifle hunts there. Um, this year I'm sort of taking it easy. I'm 
doing some foraging stuff with some of my free time instead of hunting. Um, but I have a late rifle mule deer buck tag and it's the latest that the season has ever been in Colorado. So hmm. we'll be hunting like peak rut, um, which should be pretty fun. And then I'm doing a week in North Dakota for waterfowl and pheasant with one of my buddies who lives up there. So we'll be see what the weather does and chase whatever's around. You're going to be doing any, uh, exciting Hank Shaw recipes with the waterfall or what? Probably. Yeah, <laughs> probably. Well, I think I've, I've been brainstorming on like what I can prepare to be ready for that, that trip, you know, like bring up some frozen mushrooms and make like a, you know, a risotto that I can top with like a mallard breast or something. Have you cured any uh, duck yet? Or no? I haven't. Uh-uh. That's one no. thing I've always wanted to do too, is make like a duck pastrami or something. And I never, yeah, we have done, we have done goose pastrami before and that's really good, but I haven't done duck before. Interesting. That's something yeah. I, my problem is, is I end up hunting deer so long that it ends up going through you know, waterfall season and then it's too late by the time it's all said and done, it's waterfall yeah. season's over with or or they've already migrated through and then then I'm yeah. left with nothing. But <laughs> it lines it lines up nice with my hunting season because late October when I'm gonna be in North Dakota is kind of early rifle seasons, which I don't typically hunt. Yeah. Um so I can kind of do that and then come back and do my later rifle season when I have a tag for that. Or if I'm doing archery it's September. So well before. Yeah. And our rut here for the whitetail is, is, uh, it's like November, the early November. So late October. Yeah. So that kind of ruins it, but yeah. you know, priorities, right? You do one or the other and, and for sure. maybe one day you'll have enough time to do them all. <laughs> yeah. That's the hope. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we didn't even get to cover any plants or anything, but, um, it's maybe to talk about maybe next time <laughs> for sure. Um, yeah. So, before we go, can you tell everybody like where they can find you and all that kind of cool stuff? Yeah. So my main, I've got a website, Forage Colorado, um, foragecolorado.com. I am very active on Instagram, same Forage Colorado. I have a Facebook page, uh, also Forage Colorado. And then uh, just recently started doing the whole TikTok thing, doing <laughs> some more video video content. Um, I've always enjoyed making video content and in the past I did some YouTube videos and I might get more into that in the future. But, um, yeah, if, if people are on TikTok, it's my name, Orion Aon, uh, because I plan on incorporating some of the hunting and fishing and other wild food stuff aside from just the foraging in Colorado. So that's why that one's different. Technically hunting is foraging. I mean, you're actively yeah. seeking food, right? So it is. <laughs> it sure is. Yeah. I just don't share too much of it on the forage Colorado specifically for several reasons, but mainly just audience sensitivity and not wanting to cross my wires too much and gotcha. you know, hunting and foraging and mushrooms and fishing. And it's, it's, it's also it's, fun. <laughs> yeah. I love all that stuff. I'm super passionate about all of it, but um, my brand forage Colorado is specifically centered around just the plants and mushrooms mostly. And so I, don't, I try not to, dip into t too much of the other stuff aside from when i'm cooking then i'll like <laughs> here's elk with wild mushrooms and wild plants that i foraged yeah and then you know they sort of get to see it that way at least 
Yeah, for sure. No, I think it's cool that um, you're doing that and educating others. I think it's super important, right, to not only better ourselves and learn as much as we can, but be able to not only learn it, but learn it well enough that we can pass it on to others is, is mm-hmm. an amazing, amazing thing to do. And it's always interesting talking to people that can do that. And, you know, I mean, that's why I started this podcast so I can do that and hopefully not only educate myself, but educate others. And I think that's totally. really cool. So I appreciate that. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for yeah. sharing. And it was great talking to you. Yeah. Great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you can check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenged.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show. Thursdays with Saltwater Experience, brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts, every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. When you go out there and the fish are where you think they are, any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.